Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. If you've been listening for any length of time, you'll know that I very firmly believe that anyone who's breathing is creative. I recently came across a definition of creativity that really rankled me because it seemed to be saying the exact opposite was true. I contacted my friend and fellow creativity coach, Dawn Kotzer, who's been on the show before, and asked her if she'd be interested in tackling the question of just what creativity really is. We batted that question around, looking at everything from the vital nature of failure to the power of constraints to the role of acceptance, humility, and even humiliation in the creative process. If that's not enough, we also examined driving a stick shift car as a metaphor for creativity. Did we reach any solid conclusions? I think we did. And I think you'll get a lot out of listening in on our conversation. Don, welcome back to the podcast. I am so glad that you were able to talk to me today to dig into this question of what it really is to be creative, even what creativity itself is. It's good to be here, Nancy. And because I'm trapped in a snow globe in a snowstorm <laughs> in Saskatchewan, it's you know, my options were limited. So when you <laughs> contacted me and no, no, and you said today's the day, can we play? are you still on? It was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I've got someone to play with. Excellent timing. Excellent. Excellent timing. Perfect timing. You have perfect snow timing. <laughs> well, There's no timing like snow timing. That's right. <laughs> so oh God. I came across this quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me. And it basically was saying that you're only creative if you're doing something that is changing the world in some way. And I, anybody who's listened to this podcast for any length of time can imagine my reaction. My eyebrow went very high very quickly. And I kind of said, I'm sorry, excuse me. And it, it just got me thinking like that is not a definition of creativity that I've ever heard before. And I still, very firmly believe that everybody's creative. But I want to bat this around with you because I feel like maybe there are angles here that I'm not considering. And, you know, I, my initial reaction to that quote was, wow, no pressure there. You know, who's gonna, <laughs> who's gonna hear that and think, oh, you know, I basically have to be multi-genius Leonardo da Vinci to consider myself creative, forget it. I'm going to go clean my bathroom floor and, you know, do my taxes because I'm obviously never going to be creative at all in any way. And that seems so wrong to me. Well, that's an interesting paraphrase of that quote. I have more questions than answers to start Excellent. with. Define creativity, define change, define world, define better. Like that is that person's view of creativity. Rock on. Obviously, that is that person's view of creativity. And it's really good to know that there are people out there who view creativity from such a severe angle. You use the word angle. You said, maybe there's other angles to look at this. And I thought there is because creativity is like a pinball machine. Mm. And 
does that mean that only the person who wins or who gets highest score is the most creative person playing pinball? No. Every time you step up to a pinball machine, I kind of like pinball machines. I'm really lousy, really, really, (laughs) really lousy, but they've always caught my curiosity. So anybody who steps up to a pinball machine to play a pinball machine plays it differently. You can't help but play it differently. So for me, creativity is not that rigid. It's not only when you are doing something that changes the world. That's one, that's one answer. So that idea is, dare I say it, wrong. Wrong. <laughs> and the flip side of that coin is that's absolutely right. That's absolutely correct. However, everything we do changes the world. Everything. Hold your breath for 42 seconds. You've, when you normally take a breath every 14 seconds, you have changed the world. We don't know how we've changed the world, but the world has been changed because the pace of your exhale has morphed. That's my first thought. Mm-hmm. The second thought is that. Um, For me, creativity and curiosity go hand in hand. Too often, we assume that one is in evidence only when action is present. We too often think that creativity does not happen unless action happens. And yet, There are musicians that channel music. I live with a musician who can channel music. And so I'll watch this person disappear and the music comes forward. There's action. However, this is the same person who, when they were spending long hours on a tractor, would play with tunes in their mind. He had no musical instrument close to him. You can't, you might want to hum, but for people who have been in tractors, they can be pretty darn loud. (laughs) So he would, he would form the tune. He would be forming the tune. Now that's an action nobody but he could see. So I, I have my suspicions that that quote refers to something I call pure creativity. Okay. Which is which is that thing that comes to life that has never ever occurred before. And I you and I've spoken about this before and I I mentioned once that you know I, I think the purest form of creativity I can think of for a human species, because animals have all sorts of create creative uh, uh, hacks and angles. The purest form of creativity that I can think of would have been when somebody realized that they could take their charcoal, sooty hand, push it onto a rock face and leave a mark. And 
when they chose to do that deliberately. I think we are all, we are all changing the world in very, very slight degrees. It's like, you know, with huge ships, right? You know how to, how you, you can't change the direction of a huge ship, huge ship quickly. In fact, they look like they're not moving at all for a long, long, long time. That's how we change the world. That's how we use creativity to change the world. It's not what people necessarily witness us doing. It's what we know our rudder is doing, our creative rudder. Yeah. I don't know. That That's my riff for now. You know, as, as I'm listening to you, I'm kind of finding myself wondering if for in the case of, of this person with this quote, if a better word for creativity wouldn't be genius. Because what I'm thinking is when I, when I think about the idea in the quote is, you know, you have to be like a Nobel prize winner, you know, somebody like that, I'm sure they would call creative. And to me, that feels more like a particular kind of brilliance rather than just being willing to be curious and open and play to me creativity and play overlap a lot sometimes i'm not even sure what the difference is between them and i just i I mean this is somebody you know who is an expert and has studied this so i don't want to that's why i'm not naming anybody i don't want to you know get into trouble there but to me it feels more like like that kind of you know with or without the ivory tower kind of brilliance i think you might be onto something there and i think there's a difference between creative play and creative brilliance can be one and the same they can happen in the same moment they they're not necessarily exclusive however they're not necessarily inclusive and if you are looking for some sort of creative genius which i think is different than creative brilliance which i think is probably different than creative play which i think is different than creative curiosity these are all um layers that can be helpful until they aren't. It's sometimes helpful to parse things apart and to find your bearings. But for those people who are lost in creative bogland, being told that creativity is only a form or evidence when you have creative genius or creative brilliance is very harsh, really, mm. really harsh. And it, it, it hurts a lot of people deeply. It cripples people. It cripples their spirit. So I think that's a really wise um, observation, Nancy. There is, there is a difference between creative brilliance, creative genius, and cre- creative play and creative curiosity. And there should be. And that's why 
uh, how many inventions did, how many times did Ben Franklin try to develop the light bulb before he got somewhere? How many, and, and a lot of what he worked with were not solely his ideas. He was curious about what other people were doing, had done. He took that played with it, turned it over, ripped it apart, broke it, smashed it, built it back up. So I think we arrive at creative brilliance through creative curiosity and creative play. It's impossible. It's impossible, except for maybe a very few savant-like humans to wake up one morning oblivious to creativity and by 2.15 in the afternoon, you're creatively brilliant. Right. And, and in a case like Edison's, I think, you know, that, that quote of his, you know, I haven't failed, you know, 10,000 times. Right. I've found 10,000 ways That's what I meant. Edison, work. correct. And, yes. And, you know, I mean, I think... And yes, there is some controversy around him that you kind of alluded to with him riffing on other people's ideas and things like that, how much of his stuff was entirely his and how much wasn't. And that's another conversation for another day, I think. But what I picture in my head, and I have been to one of his labs, which was really fabulous down in Florida, is, is just that insatiable curiosity of, ooh, how about we try this? And then whatever this is crashes and burns and you look at it and you go okay so why didn't it work and through trying to puzzle out why it didn't work starting in on okay so if if this is why it didn't work will that solve this problem which is all right it's good, all good curiosity which is also you know i mean that's another definition that i have of creativity is problem solving it all to me, the Venn diagram overlaps a lot with a lot of these things, yeah. you know, and and so I think, you know, if you don't have that kind of curiosity, you're never going to find the 10,000 ways that don't work and the one way that does. You know, you know? that that's that's again, you a couple of really great observations as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Edison, Franklin. He had a whole different shtick going on, which I was reading about him this morning. So he's in my mind. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. And um, here's the thing about really, you called Edison an insatiably curious person. Now, I'm a real curiosity hound. You're a real curiosity hound. And I know that I try really hard to track what and pay attention to what has inspired any ideas I may have so I can give credit where credit is due. But I confess, if you are insatiably curious, you lose track of where you saw what, how, when, why. So I think people who are insatiably curious need to give themselves permission to let go or loosen up on their tracking a little bit. All I, what I, I love the way when Seth Godin approaches some of his books, where you know how you've read a book and it's 300 pages long and you go to the back and there's 10 pages of index and there's 47 pages of bibliography and references and you just sort of groan. Now, 
I kind of like those references because I follow some of them if I'm really curious about something. But I was taken with how Seth Godin wrapped up references in one of his books. He had something like, um, he said something like, this page is inspired by the ideas, works, concepts, uh, trademarks, registered works, art, etc. of. And then he listed a hundred different people. And I thought that's a truer form of stating the obvious, that when you're really curious, you're curious about a lot of things and many different things influence you. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm kind of trying not to laugh here, but what that reminds me of is when I was in 10th grade and I had to write a research paper for my English class. Mm. And if my 10th grade English teacher is listening to this, he's probably starting to laugh already. Um, I gave him such a hard time about it because let's be honest, a high school research paper is just read something, take notes, regurgitate and turn it in. And I found Mm -hmm. this absolutely pointless. Why would I just repeat what other people had already said and put my own name on it and get a grade for it? Like, why? And yet what you're describing has the same root, but does something completely different with it because it's born out of genuine curiosity rather than your teacher saying, thou shalt write a 10-page paper. (laughs) And so the addition of the actual curiosity and and the removal of the limitation that this is what a high school paper looks like means that you can take all of those things. I, I remember distinctly describing it to him as you're asking me to put a bunch of different fruit in a blender, turn it on, pour it out and call it something new. But with Seth Godin, he kind of is doing that and coming to some new conclusion, whether he's, you know, he's probably not calling it, you know, some new fruit, but he's getting somewhere different than anybody has before by taking all of those ideas and letting them kind of go in his mental blender and seeing where that takes him, which is a wildly different take on that. And it's only taken me, you know, 35 years to get <laughs> Well, it it's a certain type of tonal curiosity and tonal creativity. By the way, you just described the invention of the first smoothie. What if I right. had this agitating thing and I put all this fruit in and mushed it up and made a real mess of it and then poured it into a glass? So there, to which somebody probably said, oh, that'll never work. <laughs> oh, yeah? Watch me. I was ahead um, of my time in 1986. <laughs> you, well, you have been ahead of your time in many cases, yes. You know, the thing, I think there's there's creating something. There's creating something, creating a thing. And then there is being in creativity, being with creativity. I, I suspect, I'd have to think about this a little more, but I suspect the necessary ingredient for both those things is likely curiosity. If I'm going to create that smoothie, I might have to be curious about 
where did I put the blender? Uh, how do I turn this thing on? How full should I fill it? How many different types of fruits can I put in there? But I don't know that I'm creating. I don't know that I'm with creativity. I'm simply creating mushed up fruit with the help of a machine. Mm-hmm. That's it. If I'm with creativity, it could be someone <laughs> oh God, someone who makes the smoothie and then realizes, oh, there's blueberries in there. A lot of blueberries. Blueberries stain. <gasps> you know, you can't really get blueberry out of unbleached cotton. Huh. I've always wanted to do something with those really awful unbleached cotton pillowcases my grandmother-in-law gave me. I'm going to finger paint. And you take the smoothie and you pour it into a pan and you spread out the pillowcases and you stain those pillowcases with a whatever kind of fruit smoothie you just created. Both of those things, you can stop that at any time. You can stop with the smoothie or you can do something else with the smoothie. But I think both of those require curiosity. So I think we have proven that creativity (laughs) (laughs) requires curiosity. Ta-da! We may also have just gone from the sublime to the ridiculous, but that's okay. <laughs> well, that's what you spoke about. You being about creative play. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to be creative geniuses. Right. <laughs> Duh. And we're not even trying to be creatively brilliant. But we are intent on playing, playing with curiosity and creativity. Well, and, and can we try, talk more about not trying? Because I feel like that can be such a vital part of the process is when it's kind of like dropping your expectations, but I don't think that that's entirely what it is. But, you know, when you let go of the piece that says, I have to do something good, wonderful, that fits this idea that so-and-so will like, that whatever it is that makes you try so hard and just let it go and be what it is and come naturally. I feel like that opens so many doors to other creative ideas and curiosities than you would get when you're trying to devise the unified unified field theory or, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do. You know, if you set out to deliberately dye those pillowcases, you might not have as much fun and the results might not be as interesting. I don't know. I think, I think try, <laughs> the act of trying is, a, is an applied state, if that makes any sense. There are some things that we intentionally try to do. We know we're trying to do them. We have an aim. We have a hope. We may even have a goal. Uh, but I'm not real big on goals, so I'd like to just stop at aim and hope. <laughs> and so we are game to try. 
we are willing to step up and try. So we may want to try and develop some uh, new scientific uh, theory or prove a scientific theory. We may we may try to do that. I think if we if we know we're trying versus feel, as you said, we must do this thing, then we can leave room for, as I mentioned earlier, pure creativity and applied creativity to partner with curiosity to take us sort of one step forward at a time. Or possibly leap what it might feel like leaps and bounds as well, but it's it comes from it has a I guess we enter into the task with an attitude that elevates us as opposed to shut us down. Yeah. And that's really what we want is that elevated state. Whereas, you know, I, I remember the first couple times I heard somebody say, you know, you're trying too hard. And I mean, I was a kid, so, you know, not too surprising that I had no idea what that meant, but (laughs) even now, you know, it's, it's kind of like, where's the line between trying and trying too hard, but there definitely is one, you know, like when you reach that point of diminishing returns and everything you're doing, you're like, so so intent and so attached to your idea of what something has to look like or needs to be that you kind of lose the rest of the plot. I think it's a felt sensation. Um, Do you drive a stick shift? I have. Yeah. Okay. Well, you remember learning how to drive a stick shift. Oh yeah. And remember how some well-meaning person gives you really good information about how to drive a stick shift. They tell you, where to put your foot, what part of you, what part of your foot to put on the clutch and the brake, this, that, the other thing. And, and then you think, why can't I get this? Why can't I get this? Why can't I get this? I'm trying so hard. And then if you're lucky, someone who knows your language, I'm not talking English, French, (laughs) Taiwanese, I'm talking your language, whatever words and tone you respond best to will say, Oh, just a second, Donnie. No, 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 no. You have to just ease back on this one while you're pushing forward on that. Give that a try. Try easing back. And then all of a sudden, you enter that zone where you feel in tandem with the movement of the engine. Mm -hmm. Trying too hard usually means two things to me. You may have not yet found the guide who can actually appreciate your language. So therefore, it's not that you are a slow learner, but not because you're a slow learner. You're possibly learning this more slowly because you haven't quite found the manual or the guide, the teacher, that is able to partner best with you. And the other reason is that you feel you must push yourself to this sort of brilliance. 
prematurely. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting as you're saying that, I'm thinking with the stick shift analogy, there are two things that I'm thinking. I feel like trying too hard is putting your, you know, way too much on the gas pedal without letting go of the clutch at all. Mm-hmm. Because that's not going to get you anywhere. It's going to rev the hell out of your engine, but it's not going to get you anywhere. But also, as as someone, the car that I have now is the first automatic car I've ever owned. And that's only because you can't get a stick shift Prius. Um, as someone who both struggled to learn how to drive a stick shift and taught several people how to drive one, it is my firm belief that driving a stick shift is the one of the best examples of how you will not learn how to drive that car if you are not willing to fail. In fact, I told people several times, you're going to screw it up. It's the only way you're going to figure it out is to keep screwing it up until the balance starts to make sense to you. And then oh, yeah. you'll start to be able yeah. to drive the car. And, you know, in this this world that we live in that is so allergic to the idea of failure i think it's a great example of how failure isn't just optional sometimes it is really truly necessary you have to mess it up in order to learn how to do it right well two things people who have never failed have never fully succeeded because they haven't tried hard enough they have no idea they are they are living a life too small for their spirit period as Young says, they're wearing shoes. They're walking through life wearing shoes too small for them then. And I know this because I'm one of those people. I used to be one of those people. I used to be allergic to failure. The only reason I could be allergic to failure is I can do a lot of things. Whoop-de-doo. I don't want to do more of the things I can do. I'm curious about those other things over there. But it took me a long time to figure out how to get there. For me, the beauty of stick shift is that you get nowhere. So I've driven stick shift cars, but I'm also I used to be cultivator girl for our organic farm operation. So I've driven huge tractors that were not always automatic. So um, the only way you get anywhere, and this probably, uh, I believe it applies in life, but you know, I don't want to push what I believe down in someone else. It's my philosophy that this applies big time to life. But when you're driving a stick shift, you go nowhere unless you get into neutral first. And neutral is where all the freedom happens. Neutral is where all of a sudden you can imagine being a little more creatively brilliant next year than you are today because you have decided to fail forward. So neutral to me, I, I'm not a big fan of balance. I really don't, I don't give a lot of attention to balance. I love equilibrium. And for me, this space of neutral in life as a person who wants to do many, many things, finding a space of neutral is like, I'm sure I've said this to you before, Nancy, having each foot in a separate canoe on the water 
and you're holding your balance. You're just standing there calmly, solidly, confidently, not for a long time. You can't do this for a long time, <laughs> but you can do it for you can do it for a little bit. You understand possibly the um the edges of how long you can stand there with one foot in two different canoes, each foot in two different canoes. And you're okay with that. You understand, you understand that there's edges to it. You understand there's a structure. You understand that there's a scaffolding there and you respect it because uh, for me anyways, it wasn't until I gained a sense of constraints as my creative building blocks that I was really able to let go of this idea about failing's bad. Oh, hell no. Failing is sometimes fun. Mm -hmm. Kind of, maybe afterwards. After you've cleaned up all the mess. (laughs) (laughs) After you've cleaned up all the mess. And as long as you don't hurt yourself and hurt other people, blah, blah, blah. But but failing, failing frees you from the fear of failing. Oh, yeah. It's not. It's awful. It is awful to live life too long in the landscape of I fear failing. It's, it's, it's quite heartbreaking, really. Mm. Yeah, it's tragic. You've just mentioned a couple of things that are kind of interesting juxtapositions with each other because we have the idea of failing and we have the idea of being freed by failure but you also mentioned working within constraints and a ways back you mentioned not being wild about goals which I resonate with because that word has always grated on me so I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about that but they there are three things that don't necessarily feel like they would go together and yet they do so the three things being goals failure failure and constraints along with the idea of of failure freeing you so you got that idea of freedom but possibly within constraints. So let's start with goals. Now, again, everyone has to define goals. What does goals mean for themselves? And we don't have to get into that because there's people who, who approach a goal for different reasons. I remember once, kind of a while ago now, before, before, yeah, yes, I'm this old, before online education, had really taken hold and was so easy to obtain. Um, I remember having this conversation with my partners saying, okay, I can do all these things. I don't know how to put them all together. I don't know how to, I don't know how to weave a container where I can utilize these things, share these things, help other people, uh, teach other people, instruct other people, what, you know, and be with other people. I don't know how to do that. I feel like I'm really quite a bit of a failure in that regard. And this was probably the spark that helped me realize how much I feared failure 
and how much, how ready I was to ditch that fear. So he turned to me and he said, so do you like where you're living? I said, well, well, I don't know. We're in the middle of nowhere. This is part of my problem because it's hard for me to connect with other people. He said, no, no. Do you like where you're living? Forget all the other stuff. Does this place nurture you? Does it feed you? Does it fuel you? I said, yeah, I love it. He said, what do you like about it? So I love the trees and I love the birds and I love the water and I love the four seasons even because it's changing and and I love the the uh, spaciousness. I love the sound of the wind in the forest. I like the wild animals that come through our yard. He said, okay, do the birds think you're a failure? I said, what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? I'm probably digging in the garden, digging up weeds or something like this. So I'm sort of stabbing at the dirt <laughs> while, while we're having this conversation. And I said, what do, you, what, what do you mean? He said, do the birds think you're a failure? Do the trees think you're a failure? Do those, do the, do the, does the wind through the trees believe you're a failure? Do the wild animals think you're a failure? He said, all these things that you love, do they think you're a failure? And I said, well, of course not. He said, well, then why? If the things that you love don't think you're a failure, why do you think you're a failure? It was like, that was my introduction to, oh, failure, you have been doing a number on me. Well, and that's just such an incredibly powerful observation. I mean, if I had been in your shoes, I think I would have had to just sit back for a good 10 minutes just to let it hit me much less well, I, do and I did with it. yeah and stabbing the dirt with trowels and things like that really speeds up your answers often because you're, <laughs> you're, you're getting you're getting a lot of the energy out of your body right and then as far as goals I learned so much by living with nature I guess I I um, one of my roles over the years has been caregiver to someone who was very physically limited. And I was in that space for a very long time, for years. And I put my life on hold while I did that. Or I thought I put my life on hold while I did that. So again, I'm in the woods this time. (laughs) This time I'm clearing shrubs. And I'm angry because I've had to put my life on hold for so long again. And it's like, I don't want to live the life of this person. I want to live the life of me. I want to live a life that fuels me and feeds me that I can enjoy. That's my goal. And right then, it was a very hot day. And right then, I kid you not, a breeze blew up over me from the lake. Overhead, a flock of pelicans flew low. And did you know that when pelicans fly, their wings squeak? So it's a really interesting sound. (laughs) They flew over me and the breeze brought with it the fragrance of wild roses that were in bloom. I stopped what I was doing. I burst out laughing because I thought, oh, Donnie, your goal was to live a life that is more than just you know, caretaking, 
I think you just got part of what you wanted. So my whole definition of goals changed. Again, for me, goals can be an outside, uh, a written designated event or group of circumstances or meeting certain criteria. That can be a goal. But the reason I have dispensed using the word goals is primarily because I'm such an experiential being. And I now know that curiosity, creativity, and experiencing the moment usually sees me through regardless of what goals I thought I wanted to achieve. I can't be responsible for all the outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I've learned, I guess, that we often think of goals as being years down the road or weeks down the road. Sometimes a goal is actually, actually just a few seconds away. Yeah. And I think, I think part of what gets to me about goals is that they feel like straitjackets, the way that most people think of them. You know, I, you know, the, the famous, the famous job interview question, where do you want to be in five years? I'm like, I have no idea what might happen between now and five years from now. And, you know, that, is not it is sort of is a goal related question it kind of you know depends on how you decide to attack it but i want to leave room for all of the stuff that i can't imagine that could happen along the way to where i exactly. think i want to go and if i'm too straight jacketed into in five years i want to have graduated from law school and you know have a job at a big firm and be making X number of dollars and living wherever, there's no room for all that other stuff to get in. And what if you change your mind? What if it turns out law school isn't really your thing? Or, you know, I mean, there's, there's so, like, I understand the purpose of having a goal, aiming at a target, all of that. There's absolutely merit to all of that. But I don't want to be so single-mindedly or as the British might say, to make it a little stronger, bloody-mindedly attached to it, that I don't see everything else that's happening around me while I'm looking at that. Right. Idea. Well, two things come up for me as I listen uh, to you share that, Nancy. A, your multi-potentialite goals would just be it, as presented by most of modern day society, they would be very, very straitjacket in feeling. So you get to, whenever you choose to do this, reframe goals as something else. And you may want to reframe them as targets. Mm -hmm. You use the word target. So it's like, okay, what's my target this week? What's And you don't even have to, again, I'm loath to, to label something because if you were to go into a meeting and say, well, what's our target this week? Or my target is this week. If there's 10 people in the room, you probably have five different interpretations of what they think you just said. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what they think. It does not matter. It's what do you think? And so it's, I mean, I do that a lot of times. I have, I have outcomes I'd like to pursue. I oft, I don't set New Year's resolutions anymore because they 
propel me or they used to propel me into areas of unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. And then all of a sudden, these resolutions that I kind of enjoyed thinking about have now become straitjackets. Mm-hmm. So find a better word. Find, find a word that works for you and find a time frame that works for you. Because as multipotentialites, I'm one as well, we are more than capable in multiply and usually diverse areas. Like I could be standing in that canoe with both feet in a canoe and I could be knitting something, imitating bird songs and probably coaching somebody in on a pontoon boat 50 feet away. <laughs> like whatever about financial security, whatever. So as multi-potentialites, we, it's not that we're just interested or curious about a lot of things. We do have insatiable curiosity. It's that we can actually juggle a lot of balls. Mm-hmm. We actually can do that. And we want to do that. So the key is often found the secret the cure, the freedom is found in the language we use to talk to ourselves, which leads to constraints. There's words that you should probably never use when you're talking to yourself. There's words that I should probably never use when I'm talking to myself. There are probably a few criteria that I should have in place to make things easier to achieve. Like one of my criteria is never focus. I never put on a list, find focus or have focus because for me, focus happens automatically when the environment is, or the criteria or the constraints are of a nature that just births focus. Yeah. When you're curious enough about something, you don't need to worry about focus. It's going to carry you a it's really true. long way. It's that's true. Actually, that is true. Yeah. Are or there things that have fun? You know. Well, even when you're not having fun. Now, you and I both have a history as uh, Kaizen Muse creativity coaches. And when I, I don't know what happened when you were taking training, I was involved with that training for many years um, in master coaching and stuff like that. But I remember one of the early exercises was to do a, you can tell me if you can remember that it was to do a deserving continuum One being I don't deserve anything, and 10 being I deserve everything. Put yourself on the deserving continuum. I hated that that exercise, and I refused to do it because it did not, it, it just didn't resonate with me. What did resonate, at that time I was in this caregiver um, role, so I didn't have a lot of free time to do anything. My day was dictated by the needs of other priorities. And that's just the way it was. It's, I'm not bitching about it. It's just the way it was. But I remember going outside and having to shovel snow 
<laughs> so this person could get to the vehicle. I remember this clearly. And I was thinking about this continuum and was like, well, do I deserve this? Do I deserve having to go shovel snow all the time? Blah, 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 blah. And I was just, again, here I am physically active at something which helps me apparently work through <laughs> the energetic tone. And I remember stopping in my tracks and saying, oh, Donnie, you might not deserve having always to shovel. But why can't you deserve the benefits of this? Mm. You're being energized. You're getting fresh air. I'm building abs. My biceps <laughs> are happy. I'm figuring out all which kind of shovel works best for shoveling snow in Saskatchewan, which, by the way, is an aluminum grain shovel. And, you know, and I feel good clearing a path for this person and for anybody else who might need it. So constraints for me have become real building blocks for everything I do because it narrows the field. I don't have to think about all the things I could be doing. And I can get really curious about what's in front, in front of me. Mm -hmm. And then I focus. Focus always usually brings a sense of calm and calm almost always opens up our genius creativity vault. See how I did that? See how yeah, we came full circle? I see how you did that. <laughs> I see what you I did you, there, Donnie. I, I <laughs> thought you'd like that. I thought, wordsmith that you are, I thought you'd love that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I remember a bunch of training exercises that had to do with scales or spectrum like that, but I mm -hmm. don't remember that one. It probably got ditched early on because it was, it was, um, you know, you, when you're in training, you tried a lot of different things, right? Or mm -hmm. when you're helping people, when you're working with people, when you're coaching people, you try out different things and you see what settles, what lands yeah. softly. At least that's how I do it. Mm -hmm. So, but it is interesting because, you know, there have been more times than I can even bring to mind specifically, but you know, where I've had a reaction to a particular thing, like what you were mm -hmm. describing with that exercise. It was like, ah, this is not speaking to me. I don't want to do this. This is meh. And then something happens and all of a sudden I have this moment of very reluctant humility <laughs> where I think, <laughs> oh, that's what you meant. Okay. Okay, I, I get that now. All right, I'll I'll shut up now and and go answer the thing that you asked me that I didn't want to answer because I didn't like your question because because now I get it. Okay, <laughs> and that's usually about how I feel about it. You know, it's kind of like, oh, that's what you meant. Now I feel a little bit stupid, but at least now I know what you meant. Okay. Yeah, I get that, and. And for me, I had to use the initial exercise, and I'm sure this has happened to you lots, because you're so curious and inventive and creative. So you see this initial exercise or request, which pushes your buttons, pushes my buttons. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it pushes my buttons gets my curiosity. 
that's the beauty of curiosity. And so what's going on here? What, what, what is it about this? Why don't I like this? What, this is just a question. What's the problem here? Mm-hmm. And then often it's, well, there is no problem. It's just simply not the way that I phrase it. It's not the way I best approach that. Ken, you talk, spoke about angles, the angles of curiosity, uh, creativity, pardon me. I, that's just not the best angle for me to approach it from. Mm-hmm. Can I find a perspective that is more understandable, relatable to me? And you mentioned humility. Mm-hmm. Humility is a really important part of that. And it's like, oh, that is a good question. It's, I, I, can't, I can't answer it exactly like that. But I am so grateful for that question because it has led me to whatever. Yeah, and and I suspect that the things that we react so strongly to when we first encounter them, that it's that reaction in part that sparks whatever goes on in the subconscious that eventually pops up and says, you know, oh, that's what you meant. That if we hadn't reacted to it that way, we never would have landed in that particular moment. And those things that I react to so strongly when I first see them almost always end up being the things that I learn the most from, which also tends to call for reluctant humility. And I'm sometimes more reluctant than others. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I don't want to learn this thing from you, but. You know, one of the anyway. <laughs> um, you and I both follow Martha Beck a lot, and and when I was training with Martha years ago, one of the first things uh, because she has a degree in uh, Chinese philosophy, mm-hmm. I think is what it is. So she loves Lao Tzu, and she said my favorite one of my favorite quotes is this, and the king said, "All rivers run down toward." their sea, the sea, because that is where they find their greatest power and their greatest humility. So humility, according to the metaphor of all rivers running down to the sea where they merge, is in Lao Tzu's eyes, one of our greatest sources of power. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about global power, not talking about dominate global domination. I'm simply speaking of uh, personal interior mm-hmm. power, where we can then use where humility helps clear the veils away, clears the fog, clears the the angst. And I think you mentioned, you know, you mentioned where you have these strong reactions. And I thought, oh, that's it, reactions. When we learn to practice awareness, which is tricky in the beginning, it's really kind of raw and uncomfortable. When we learn to practice awareness through curiosity, then we are able to say, hmm, whoa, that really set me off. 
what's up there? And you think about it and you may say, nope, still don't like it, not for me. And then you get creative with what might work for you. So it's interesting how reactivity can be very much in the same playground as curiosity, creativity, constraint. Yeah. Yeah. And I I like that idea of humility as a source of power because we don't generally think of it that way. And yet it isn't until you're willing to admit that you don't already know everything that you can learn whatever it is that you need to learn in any given situation. Well, I think we, people, for whatever reason, I, I, again, I, I'd have to give, give this some thought, but um, false modesty has become preferable to real humility. And I'm, I'm not sure how that happened. I do know that I have learned the greatest lessons of humility from small children. I, 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 for some reason, there's a lot of little kids that come and go in my life. I, I, I enjoy small children. They enjoy me. And maybe that's why I, I know people who have small kids and I'd rather play with the small kids than probably, you know, talk politics with the adults. So, uh, gee, surprise. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but I've watched little kids say these things to me. Well, I'll say, would you like to play with Lego? And they'll say things like, yeah, I'm not very good at that, but at Lego, my brother's better, but I'll play Lego. And there's not a hint of negativity in that statement. Or I'll say, well, would you like to try? Um, um, I remember once I asked my little granddaughter, she was three, and I said, would you like to try uh, folding this napkin or something like that? And she said, well, I could. I'm not very good at folding things, though. But but I could try. Absolutely no negativity in it. Nothing. And that was that's what humility. Humility is truth. Mm-hmm. False mo- false modesty is positioning. Humility yes. is just this clear truth. Well, and in those examples, what I also notice is that it's not it's not just humility. It's humility and willingness. Like, oh, right. You know, I'm acknowledging that this is true, but I'm cool with that. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which you don't encounter in adults very often. I think, I think many, many, many adults would like to have more of that in their life. I'm I'm not sure they, I'm not sure they know how to uh, get there. Uh, I'm not sure they know. Possibly. I don't know. I think modern day pressures don't teach people how to help the other person save face. Mm. So therefore, it's more difficult to really say, I suck at this. Right. (laughs) I suck. I could help you, but I suck. It's really hard to say that. Yeah. And that's what I'm thinking when I say I'm not sure they know it's an option. 
you know they feel like humility is going to bring humiliation and they don't want that because who does no and they're two totally different things Mm -hmm. humility is an interior state of being humiliation is the result of something being put upon you yes yep could be your thoughts but those thoughts have been conditioned by someone else's filter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're two, they're, one is inner and one is, one is um, the result of exterior or external provocation. Yeah. Or, or it's, it, you know, externally imposed mm-hmm. by someone else. Yeah. So how does humiliation Humility. Okay, I'm just going to rewind the tape here. We've got humiliation. We've got humility. Or pardon me, we've got humiliation, saving face, humility, constraints, uh, goals. Um, what was the other thing? There was another. Oh, failing, uh, fear of failure. Mm-hmm. How does. How, what am I trying to say here? How does. I know. How does pulling up a seat, pulling up a chair around our table, our inner table, for every one of those things to appear, how might that help us become more comfortable being at whatever level of creative we are, whether it's creative curious, creative play, creative brilliant, or creative genius? Do you think that would help if we make if we pull up a chair for every one of those things we've discussed here today and said, look, hey, expect it. It's okay. Mm. We've got room for those things to show up. It's okay. Yeah. And Would that, that help us be more creative more easily? Yeah, because that also involves acceptance. You have to accept that oh, right. all of those things are possible and parts of the process. And, you know, you may fail. You may be humiliated in your failure, but if you can pick up yourself, whatever else fell to the ground when you failed, because for some reason that's always the image that comes to my head, um, and learn something from it, it's all okay. Even if that learning so, is just keep going. You know, it doesn't have to so be if you, profound. Just keep going. No. So if you can find a deeper sense of humility when you fail, then the feeling of being humiliated, you're probably in a kinder space. So if you fail and you find, and you you find your sense of humility with that, you come, you find that inner humility and you settle kindly with it. If you have a greater sense of that, if you aim to practice gaining a greater sense of humility than again wrestling with fear of being humiliated you you're really serving your creative self well yeah and i think you may even be to a certain extent armoring yourself against the effects of humiliation Especially yeah. because humiliation has a, a connotation of unfairness to it. You know, I mean, you can, in your humility, own, okay, I haven't figured this part out yet. Not any good at X, but I've got right. Z, but I'm, 
still working on X. And then if somebody comes up to you and says, boy, you are really, really crappy at X, you go, yep, it's going to be a whole lot harder for them to actually actively humiliate you. So now, of course, I have a question, which I will, we can think about, you know, afterwards. It's like, (laughs) huh, I wonder, this makes me, well, I want to research this. I want to research how humility ties in with creative genius and creative brilliance. Are those people or the high, the bulk of people who are seen to be creative geniuses and or creatively brilliant, do they have a greater sense of humility as well? Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to see? I don't, you, you, you get on it. You get on on it. I task you with that job. Should you decide, should you decide to accept the mission? It could be a small step. If it doesn't appeal to you, it's okay. (laughs) Yes, Coach Don. (laughs) I do feel like I need to say, you know, I don't think that humility is necessarily a guarantee that humiliation isn't going to get to you because some people can be really mean. But I think if you're secure in what you what you do and don't know and what what you even what you are and what you aren't, I think you're in a much better position to deal with it. That's what I'm really saying. Well, yeah, and it isn't that humiliation won't get to you, as you say. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with humiliation when it gets to you that helps you become more of, it, it helps you live this life with a big enough spirit. Mm. Especially for people who are multipods, multipotentialites, where they can do a whole lot of different things. They're willing to try a whole lot of different things. They're curious to try a whole lot of different things. So there's probably, I, I don't, I, I don't want to speak for other people, but there might be a fear of of failing, failing, of course, but there might also be, as you said, a fear of being humiliated because you're trying something new again. And if you haven't mastered really within yourself how to release the humiliation, that could possibly be an obstacle. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I'm now finding really fascinating is that we've been talking about this for an hour and not once has the word courage come up, but you can't do any of these things. You can't deal with failure. You can't have the humility. You you know, you certainly can't withstand humiliation if you don't have courage and you're not going to start anything new without it either. It's a really vital part of the entire creative process. I don't think you can be creative if you don't have the courage to start something, to try something, to experiment with something. And the degree of courage may vary, you know? I mean, your blueberry smoothie staining the pillowcase example is comparatively minor. Whereas if you want to try something really, really huge, that's a whole other level of courage. But whatever level it is, if you don't have it, I don't think you're going anywhere. And that's, I think what you said, it, it, again, there's a sliding scale of courage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, you know, 
it occurred to me while you were saying that I think people are encouraged before they realize they're doing something courageous most of the time. How many times has somebody asked you, how could you do that? And you say, well, I don't know. I was just doing it. I just did it. And it's kind of like afterwards we realize, oh, I didn't know that I would actually do that. I didn't think I had the courage to do that. So courage, I think there's a preparatory element to building our courage muscle for sure. There's preparations we can do to build our courage muscle, which means exercising small, courageous acts on a regular basis. But I also think that there's a part of us that is always courageous. Mm. We are always standing with courage, and it's so natural to us that we don't even recognize it as that. That's really interesting. If we're not recognizing so, it. Hmm. It's just what we do. It's who we are. When we are, those moments when we're fully in within ourselves, when we're standing in shoes that are big enough for us, mm. for our essence, for our talents, for our dreams, for our, our, our goals, our targets, <laughs> when we are just fully standing in those, I don't know about you, but I don't tend to say, oh, okay, I got my courage on too. My courage is just, yeah. I don't know, it's just, it's just here with me. We work up to that. And I think that's the beauty of being curious and creative in different ways. We get to flex, we get to feel our way forward. Oh, we get to feel and fail our way forward. Ooh. So now you've sent my brain back to Dumbo and the magic feather. <laughs> because, you know, Dumbo can already fly. He just doesn't know it until Timothy Mouse gives him the magic feather that tells him and tells him that the feather will give him the ability to fly. And then he has the courage and the faith and the trust to actually try it and do it. Because I'm thinking that, you know, we we spend so much time thinking we need, you know, oh, I want to do this thing, you know, whatever it is. I want to have an art show. I want to try out for a play. I want to go sing with a band, whatever it is. And a lot of us immediately say, oh, I don't think I have the guts to do that. And stop ourselves, you know, just like, to, you know, Dumbo to in the it, movie. We, yeah. need, we think we need the magic feather. But what and you're maybe you saying do. is we've got it a lot more than we think we do and we do it all the time and we don't recognize it. And I'm just finding that really fascinating. Well, I my question would be, okay, you want to go, let's use, let's, let's use singing. Okay. So um, because someone has invited you to perform something you've always wanted to perform, perform at a place that you've always wanted to perform, or they're looking for people to audition, let's put it that way. And you, you'd like to do, but you don't know. You don't know if you have the guts. I would just say, well, Nancy, where have you had the guts before? Mm. And I would ask you, actually, for a whole bunch of examples of where you've had the guts before, not to sing, 
but to show, to raise your hand. Where have you had, because that's what additioning is, you raise your hand. Where have you ever raised your hand before? Well, yeah, Dawn. Okay, well, where did you get the guts to do that? How did you know you had the guts to do that? And I don't know what you would answer, but I'd say, I don't know. I just raised my hand. My hand was up before I realized I raised it. And then are there other times where you have to think about raising your hand? Yeah. Did you raise your hand? Eventually. Or no, I didn't. Right. So, yeah, I do think I think we I think many of us walk with courage every day that we do not recognize. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I, I'm just saying I think that's there. Yeah. And and that what you've just said now is reminding me of how we all have that thing that we do that we don't have to think about, we don't have to try hard, that people ask us how we do it and we say, I don't know, I just do it, that other people are blown away by. And you know, we think nothing of it usually because it's easy for us. And so we don't realize how hard it is for somebody else because it just comes naturally to us. And I think that, you know, is usually where our biggest gifts lie and where to really come full circle is where our creativity lies, whether we realize that that's what it is or not. And I think one of the hardest things to do in those situations is to stop and step back and really hear what other people are saying when they say, oh man, how did you do that? You know, with that genuine awe and wonder in their voice because they are baffled. They know they could never do it because we tend to just say, oh, I don't know. It's no big deal. I just do it and not realize that that is a big deal to a lot of people. And that it's not that easy and to to really take that in and give ourselves credit for it. And maybe you have just cracked the nut that you brought to this call at the beginning. Maybe creativity truly, we are at our most creative. Let's rephrase that. We are, I'll rephrase it. We are at our, we are at our most creative. When we activate courage to do the things that we are afraid to give ourselves permission to do. Mm. And it's not the thing we do that changes the world as much as it is allowing other people to witness someone taking action through courage. That could be it. It's like in creativity is inspired courage. The ultimate creativity or the highest level of creativity is inspired courage. I think I know what I'm calling this episode. I should. <laughs> oh, okay. I should write that down. I, I should really I make know, a graphic really about that. Just a second. Let me write it down. <laughs> I'll just make a note. It'll, okay. But, but maybe that's what, what it is. Maybe that's what this person meant by that, by creative brilliance is really creating from a place of inspired courage, not just inspiration. You and I create from a place of inspiration all day long. 
But we both know that we have things we've created that we haven't yet pulled the, flipped the switch on. Yeah. Yeah. I love that definition. But that's, that's just creative brilliance. Creative brilliance comes from a place of inspired courage. Creativity itself is available to all in many, many different forms. I agree. No one, no one. If, if you are in your creative zone, then you are hanging out in your space of brilliance. No one else has to see what you're doing. But, but especially if you are, if you're sharing your creative offerings from a place of inspired courage, that's, that's another level. That's maybe another level. Yeah. I have a feeling we're both going to be chewing on this conversation for a while. I think so. It was it was good to see how all of this stuff um, it's kind of like a maypole. Mm-hmm. You can you've got all these these many eight or ten attributes, situations, states of being we've spoken of. They each have their colored ribbon attached to the top of the maypole. There is a gazillion ways that you can wrap that maypole with those ribbons. Yep. And they and all everyone, and intertwine and yeah. And they're all alive with color mm-hmm. and active and action. Yeah a great metaphor it was good it was i i thank you for asking me to participate in this and explore that quote that neither one neither you nor i really could put in context with some of the other writing that this person has done so it's been really good to find our own uh, complementary definitions of different tones of creativity. That's this week's show. Many, many thanks to Don Kotzer for a fascinating discussion. And as always, thank you for listening. You know, I talk to people all the time who are feeling totally lost, overwhelmed, and stuck creatively. And I know there are lots more of you out there who are feeling the same way. So I made something to help. Check out the link in your podcast app for my creative tune-up kit. It's 37 bucks, super affordable, and it's full of my favorite coaching tools to help you rediscover your creative self and make progress fast. I would love to get it into your hands so that you can get unstuck and create beautiful things this year. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. 